Aloha, folks. You are listening to Inside the Desert Oasis Room, episode number 131. This episode is sponsored by Tandawai Rum, the world's largest rum producer and winner of over 170 international medals in the past four decades. Check out their webpage at TandawaiUSA.com or follow them on Facebook or Instagram at TandawaiUSA. This podcast is also sponsored by the Tonga Hut. Opened in 1958, the Tonga Hut in North Hollywood is L.A.'s oldest continuously run tiki bar. Dine in a secret tiki hideaway or learn about rum and rum history at one of their educational seminars. And if you're up to the challenge, take the journey to join the loyal order of drooling bastards. For information on events, rum rum club, and more, go to tongahut.com or find them on Facebook or Instagram. This episode is sponsored by the Tiki Bar T-Shirt Club, where their monthly t-shirt designs pay tribute to a Polynesian bar or restaurant from days long past. Each design is available for a limited time and will never be produced again. For more information and to check out this month's shirt, visit TikiBarTshirtClub.com. Today we chat with Drew Brophy. Drew Brophy is a world-renowned, lifelong artist, surfer, and traveler whose career expanded in the late 1990s when he began painting surfboards using techniques he developed with water-based paint pens. On this episode, we join Drew in his gallery and studio to chat about how he got his start as an artist, some fun stories of his travel adventures, his philosophies on life, and how his art has evolved and continues to evolve in this ever-changing world. As always, I hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did bringing it to you. And if you did, hit that subscribe button. Subscribing makes it easier for you to follow our adventures. Shares on your social media pages are always appreciated. And if you'd like to help support the show, go to DesertOasisRoom.com to pick up some merch or make a donation. This podcast does not survive without the help of its sponsors or its listeners. So every purchase or donation, no matter the size, is totally appreciated and helps keep this podcast coming to you every week. Okay, here he is, artist, surfer, traveler, and more. Give it up for Drew Brophy. Aloha, folks, and welcome back to another episode of Inside the Desert Oasis Room. Guess who I've got in the studio today? Well, actually, we're not in my studio. We're in his studio. We've got the one and only Drew Brophy. Welcome, Drew. Yeah. How you doing, folks? Life is good. I've been wanting to have Drew on this show for a long, long time. Drew and I met way, way back, way back in 2000. I want to say 2002 because it was at a tiki farmer event that Holden had yeah. called the Big Old Tiki Bash. That thing and was crazy. I remember that. It was a yeah. ton of people. It was nuts. It was nuts. So, you know that it was way back when this whole tiki revival was just starting. Mm-hmm. You know, like people were just kind of figuring out what it was. Yeah. And I got into the scene like really, really early, even before the Book of Tiki came out. It was just something that I liked from basically surfing. Um, when I was younger, my parents or my grandparents, they would take me to Don the Beach Corner and that kind of stuff. But the tiki stuff really like it was first became a thing to me when I was surfing, you know, growing up surfing yeah. in Orange County. And when I met Drew 
And this is funny because we were just reminiscing about this. It was, it was uh, during this event, I was buying a mug that he was hand painting feverishly because there was this long line of people and he was trying to get all these mugs painted so that he could sell them at this show. And, and when he sold me this mug, it was still sticky from the paint. So yeah, it wasn't even dry yet. It wasn't even dry yet. I brought it in and um, I got a kick out of seeing your reaction to seeing that. Yeah. You know, it was so much fun, you know, because when you do the tiki mugs and, you know, you have all the bisques, you know, there yeah. and then you have all the glazes come out and they're really cool. But for me, like I always want them to have more character. And yeah. so to be able to paint just the raw bisque and, and make them the way I wanted to was really, really rad. It was awesome. I'm, I'm so happy that I got one. It was yeah. probably the most expensive thing I bought that night, too. Yeah. Yeah. It looks, uh, still looks great. Yeah, it looks awesome. Well, that's because I put it up on a shelf that you can't mess around with it, you know? So it's up high. I had to get on a ladder to bring it down so that oh, I could. You did? Yeah, so that I could bring it here. I'd be drinking my ties out of it. <laughs> but I love it. I love it. So I want to I wanna kind of delve into who Drew Brophy is because I think you've got a really interesting story. I want to start with all the way from the beginning, like how you got started, your background. Did you always want to be an artist? Yeah, so I got into this because I love to surf. I love the waves and I love the ocean. I grew up in South Carolina of all places. Oh, really? Which is like super far away from anything. And I kind of grew up in the middle of nowhere. And uh, the one thing I had going for me is the the beach. A lot of people don't even realize South Carolina has coastline, but we have a beautiful coastline there. And I had a love with the ocean and I had a love for... Everywhere in the world, I used to look at National Geographics and see all these wonderful places in the world and Surfer Magazine. And, you know, surfers are so lucky because they get to go to some of the most beautiful places on the planet. And a lot of them just happen to be in the South Pacific. Yeah. And um, I dreamed of going to all those places. And uh, I kind of made it my mission in life to visit as many places in the world that I could. And by the time I was 25, I'd already been to a lot of them. And so traveling to, you know, of course, Hawaii. I lived in Hawaii for a long time and then uh, lived in, uh, or not lived in, but visited Tahiti quite a bit. I've been to Tahiti a bunch of times and, you know, trips to Samoa and, right, right. and Fiji and and New Zealand and, and Indo and, you know, just going to all these places and... Uh, just really inspired by the culture, um, the waves, of course, and the beauty. And uh, I was a surfer first and artist second. Yeah. And I got into doing art because uh, I used to paint my own surfboards. And in order to pay for my way traveling around the world, uh, I would work in surfboard factories. So I was lucky enough that everywhere I went, they made surfboards. And so I've, I've, I've actually worked in factories in 16 different countries around the world wow. painting surfboards. So would you say that the art thing then kind of, it came as like a natural part of that? Or was there something that made you decide, you know, I want to be an artist and you wanted to pursue it as a career? It was the only thing I was good at. Um so the short answer is no, I didn't really get to pick. It was like, I feel everybody gets dealt a set of cards in life, the things they're good at. And, you know, being from South Carolina, I kind of felt like I got a pair of twos 
surfing oh, and, yeah. and art. Yeah. And I wasn't even that good of an artist when I was younger. Um, I was decent, but um, I'm like, okay, I got these two cards to play. How am I going to play them? And um, I feel like I played them pretty good. I know the answer to a lot of the questions that I ask, but I think that what our listeners would find fascinating is, and correct me if I'm wrong, you actually don't even have formal art training, right? You didn't go to art school. No, I um, I wanted to. I'd, I would have loved to go to school or have somebody to teach me, but uh, it just wasn't in the cards for me. So um, I asked myself uh, at a very, I guess around 18, 19 years old, um, if I died today, what would I be sad I haven't done? Right. And that was to travel to these places and surf big waves and... Uh, you know, experience life. Right. And um, that was my only plan. And uh, it worked out. So, yeah, I didn't have any education. But what I, I did have is I met so many wonderful people around the world who gave me their time and they uh, gave me tips. And so I'm a product of lots of little bits of information that yeah. thousands of people have given me. Well, your art. And your success as an artist has proven that sometimes the best way to learn is just by doing. Yes. Right? And and by looking at your work, I wouldn't think that you didn't go to art school because <laughs> it's just so damn cool. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I tell artists all the time, you know, if there's any artist out there listening, that it doesn't matter how good you are. Somebody's going to love it and somebody's going to hate it yeah, uh, no yeah. matter what you do. You just need to focus on the people who love it. And for me, you know, when I started, my art wasn't that great, but I was good. It was good enough to make a life for myself. And I got better and I got better and I got better. And so now 30 years later of doing art and, uh, you know, I am pretty good, and I, I only just recently I feel I think like you're more than pretty good. <laughs> but just, you know, I, I I finally feel like I'm good enough to create something amazing, and you know, I'm I really do uh, love creating things, and I, and a lot of people don't even know what being an artist is, and and you know, being an artist is thinking differently. Okay, it's uh, it's being able to see the world differently. And so most people are walking around, you know, only seeing very little, you know, almost like they have blinders on. So if you imagine an artist is like wide open. So I'm like, you know, hypersensitive and and I just notice everything. And when I'm working with a, whether it's a band or a, a surf client or a company like Google, um, I'm listening to what they want and what's going to look cool. You know, I tell people it's my job to make things look cool. So they, they have a problem with something, you know, it could be an album cover or advertising campaign or t-shirt or tiki mug. Uh, but it's my job to listen and then create something great that people are going to like. And um, and it's actually thinking. It's not, it, it's right. in that, that, those thoughts come from real experiences yeah. So especially like when I think of things that are, you know, what I love, surfing and, and the beauty of nature and, and, and even tikis themselves, it comes from being there. Yeah. yeah. It's authentic, you know. Yeah. You know, I've hiked through the, the mountains in Tahiti to get to the center of the island where they have this 
this big like sacred site with like stuff carved into the ground and all these like giant stone uh, tiki carvings. And half the people on the island's never even been there. Wow. And I would talk to people about it. They're like, yeah, I've never even heard of that place. And, you know, it took me all day to get there. Yeah. And um, so anything that I do comes from real experience. And I think that's why people like it. They, 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 it's not just how I do the art. They know that I'm, I'm living it. I'm sure people can also relate to it because when you were starting out and you were painting surfboards, I bet other surfers were looking at it and they were saying, oh, look at that. That just that feels like that stoke you get from having an awesome day out in the water. Yeah. You know, um, but also along the same lines, you know, this stuff that I'm looking at on the walls here, and we're going to talk about the different styles that you're painting now, but the style that that really made you famous, it looks very 60s influenced. Have yeah. you heard that before? Yeah. Um, and that influence comes from the early days of Surfer Magazine. Okay. And, um, you know, I, I was... I was a young kid in the early 70s. Uh, I was already surfing at four and five years old. There was nothing really to do but go to the beach. I lived right by the beach, and my older brother surfed. And they always had these, you know, surfer magazines laying around. And, and in, that, in those magazines were, you know, the art of the time. And, the, mm-hmm. and a lot of the magazines were actually older um, that they had, like, collected, that other people collected and given to them. So... Uh, some of that art was from the 60s. Yeah. So I was looking at old magazines that people had collected. Um, also looked at a lot of album covers. So okay. back in the day, you know, you were looking at these album covers, just tripping out on them. Yeah. And uh, it was part of the process of listening to music. I mean, you listen to the music and you stared at the album covers. I mean, it was That's awesome. something that I think uh, our kids are going to miss out on, which kind of bums me out is when I was younger and you listen to a record putting the needle on the record, you know, like all the care you took to like dust off the record and clean and that it. sound before yeah. music comes on a yeah, little like scratchy, a little sound. scratchy sound. And then laying on the floor with an album cover, pulling out the liner notes, reading the, the lyrics, kind of stuff, yeah. reading the lyrics. Now you don't even know what the lyrics say. <laughs> well, now sometimes the lyrics is just this, is just one line that's repeated over and over and over. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's an experience that is, is now lost. Yeah, um, but yeah, I was definitely influenced by that the the '60s and the '70s, and and you know I didn't do it consciously. It just comes out. You know, you're you're really you know programmed with these things at a young age of what they look like and and resonate with you. And I think the the '60s are such a great time because it seems like the creative flow was really coming out of people mm-hmm. then. Um, but with that comes all the the other stuff, you know, that there was a lot of frustration in that time period, too. Um, so it's a yin and yang type of thing. And, and for me, uh, you don't think about it so much. I, I, I really try not to try so hard. And the ideas just kind of come out. Yeah. That's a great segue to my next question, actually. I wanted to ask you how you approach your projects. How is it different today than it was when you were first starting? And and what do you do? Yeah, so that's a great question. And uh, 
I think this is it's interesting because this goes back into what's it like to be an artist and it's a lot of listening uh, so back in the day when I would be doing surfboards I'd have to do 10 to 20 boards a day wow. to make a living wow and um, that's there, a lot of boards yeah it's a lot <laughs> and so that was my college I, I, I yeah, learned yeah. by repetition so I probably painted more surfboards than anybody alive at least more cool ones. Um, there's probably somebody painting stripes somewhere that might have painted more stripes than me. But, <laughs> um, but, you know, for me, I was doing a lot of custom stuff. And so I would have to listen to what they wanted. And, you know, so everybody was a little different. And in that listening, you know, you really connect with them and, and come up with this idea that's just for them. And man, that's like such a killer feeling and, and connection with people. And so I got really good at that through the surfboards, having to do so many. And um, I used to go to this one trade show in Orlando, Florida called Surf Expo. And nobody brought surfboards there. They brought, you know, a couple to show and they would take orders. Well, uh, I used to do all the boards for this company, Lost Surfboards, which yeah. I still do boards today yeah. with them. Good friends of mine. But um, we started bringing boards and selling them because we didn't want to take them back to California with us. And we would always sell them because I was hand painting them. But we had more people wanting than we sold. So it got to the point where we're bringing 20 boards, 30 boards, 40 boards, 50 boards to hundreds of boards. Wow. And then we'd bring them all clear. Wow. Just white. And so it's a three-day show. I'd start early in the morning and people knew I was going to paint them. So we would sell all the boards white, usually in the first 15 to 20 minutes of the show. Did they even know what they were going to get? So what they did is they would put their business card on the board. Mm -hmm. And then they would I would start at one end of the booth. They were on the outside of the booth, like 100 and something boards. And we had a huge booth. And um, I would paint live like all three days. And so they would see me coming, uh, progressing down, and they would show up right as I'm finishing one board, and the guy would be all excited, like, you know, like, okay, I want this. And so every one of them was different, and they would get to take all the boards at the end of the show. But you can imagine how amazing that was for uh, the individual, but also for the people watching. They would just watch this unfold and so all that listening and, and being on the spot and being able to perform live allowed me to do what I do today, which is, you know, I do bigger projects. So it could be, you know, an album cover for a band and they have this vision and, you know, I was doing the one for Sublime and I had like 10 dudes on the conference call and everybody's yelling ideas at me and they're arguing and the guy from the record company is like a bum out and he's saying stuff. And, and so out of that, madness comes the ideas and and the the record album uh it's called sirens uh really reflects that conversation and so you get really good at at this listening and pulling this information out of people and it works with some of my more technical clients too with you know uh it could be ibm or western digital hard drives and where I got to articulate like what they're trying to teach people about their product or their services. So like if for IBM, I did this thing about the cloud. Okay. You know, when the cloud came out, everybody's like, what's the cloud? I don't know what that is. And so right. I, I painted this big mural at this trade show in San Francisco, of 
like how the cloud works and I had like these servers in the cloud and right. showing like the wireless technology and and so when people saw it, it was really easy for them to explain what it was with the visual. I would have never thought that you would ever tell me that you painted something about something like for a tech company like that. That yeah. just does not seem like the kind of stuff you paint. Yeah. But I bet there's a lot of stuff that you paint that people don't know you paint. Yeah, like I was telling you earlier, I mean, a lot of people go online, they see tons of my artwork, you know, on the internet. But some of the coolest things that I do, I can't show people due to the fact that it's proprietary to a company or it hasn't been released or it's for a private individual who, um, like I've been working with a lot of scientists and researchers and they're, they used that uh, idea that I have to... Uh, to study, they're studying something, so they don't. They're they want to keep on to it, hold on to it. And I did this one mural that you know I can't show anybody, and it's, it's a real bummer because it was like one of the coolest things I've ever yeah, done. Yeah. Um, but they kept it internal within the company, yeah. and I can't even talk about the company I did it for. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, but it feels really good that as an artist, that you know, that's your job is to is to listen and, and create these things because you have the ability to see things that other people can't. Yeah, yeah. And then by painting them, you make them real. Yeah. And um, that goes with the tiki's. I mean, you just think about the tiki's and how, you know, these, you know, characters and these, these, you know, artistic sculptures, you know, what are they trying to say with these things? Mm-hmm. Um, all, I often think that when I'm in a place and I see this, you know, statues somewhere, and um, it's usually heavily eroded. And I'm just like, man, what were these people thinking? And uh, they went through a lot of effort to to create one of these things. And you know, we have a lot of fun creating the mugs and and the illustrations and stuff based off of Polynesia and right. and some of these ideas. But um, you know, we're sculpting clay. These people were chipping rocks, I mean, yeah. or carving in Hawaii. They were doing yeah. it out of wood, um, which would have been, you know, hard still. But the ones out of stone are, are, are crazy. That makes me wonder about the medium that you use because I know that you use Posca paints. Are you still, yeah, it's mostly Posca paints? Yeah, right? Una, Am Una, I saying that right? Yep. Okay. Uh, Una Posca paint pens. And that seems a little unorthodox for the typical painter, right? Do they just typically use uh, latex or oils? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So when you think of a fine artist, they they would probably be pretentious and say they only work in oils and you know nothing else is real art. And I'm like, okay, well, that's great. You know, <laughs> um, you know, or you work in acrylics. Um, right. But for me, due to the fact that I didn't go to school and was limited on money and knowledge uh i was gifted the paint pens as a as a gift from my my parents friends and he was an executive in japan and these pens were made for kindergarten kids to play with in japan um they're non-toxic like acrylic based pens he gave them to me as a gift and he knew i was you know i like to draw and stuff like that but uh i instantly started painting on my surfboards with them yeah and it was just a, a very unintimidating way to paint. Um, I think a, a lot of uh, 
kids and, and adults, you know, they kind of look at it as this complicated process and you got tubes of paint and brushes and, you know, you can make a mess and it's really hard to get started. The paint pens are just really easy. You yeah. know, you have these basic colors. You could just, it doesn't make a mess. I can get an idea out. And so it was just a better way to paint. It was more efficient. And so when I had to paint surfboards, like, you know, 10 to 20 in a day, uh, it's just a better way to do yeah, it. You could just knock them out with those pens, right? Yeah. Prior to that in, and during that same time period, I was airbrushing boards and mainly that's what I was doing in the factories was airbrushing. Okay. Um, but it's more of a technical job. It's not creative. Uh, so you're painting flames and stripes and pin lines and you can be creative, but it's so labor intensive that nobody wants to pay you to do that because it slows you down. It, and with an airbrush, it, it would be uh, a loss because you would spend all this time and you wouldn't get paid much. Whereas the Posca pens allowed me to paint faster, quicker, and charge more money. Yeah. Which was, you know, a better way to do it. And it took me probably six years before I could convince a company to to let me do it uh, on wholesale surfboards in a factory. Oh, wow. So I would only do it for myself and for underground surfers. And I was living in Hawaii at the time. And uh, you could you couldn't get the pens anywhere outside of Japan, and lucky for me that there was uh, an actual Japanese drugstore in Hawaii, and they were importing the pens illegally, and so I could get them from there. And I thought that it was the greatest idea ever to do this, and uh, nobody else thought it was cool because the surfboards didn't look the way a surfboard was supposed to right, look. Right. And it wasn't until I moved to California that. My friend Matt Biolis with Law Surfboards, uh, he he let me go, and from the moment the public saw it, it took off like a skyrocket. So I went from starving to death to traveling around the world, yeah. uh, uh, pretty quick. It was pretty nuts. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's you're living the dream, man. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's all I've ever done, so. Uh, so, so you don't know you're living the dream. It's just all you know. Yeah, yeah. it's all I know. As far as the Posca pens and the airbrushing and all these mediums that you use for the stuff that you typically do, is there another medium that you have used before, or is there like a dark horse that just something that you know that you're challenged with that you say, you know, I want to get, I want to get, um, I want to master this particular type of medium. Um, I th I'm. I think I could pretty much master any medium at this okay. point. I mean, I know how to paint, and I know how I know what I I want to create. Usually, I'm limited by time. Uh, somebody's not paying you to create a masterpiece; they're paying you to finish this idea, and you're under a, a tight timeline. So right, that's why right. the Posca pens are so great. Yeah, they're efficient. And the other benefit, you know, when I started, there was no computers, there was no cell phones, there was very limited printing and I grew with all of that so I, all those things came to be and I had to grow with it and so one of the neat things about Posca is it translates very well to printing and so that was great as printing got better and better it allowed me to uh, build this way of painting where it just looked great yeah. and yeah. and Back in the day, it was really hard to create something artistically and then print it. Yeah. 
Okay. It's almost like two different things. Right. Uh, and, and so, you know, the, the technology has really benefited me. And the Posca pens just really translated that. So to me, I, just, I would love to use all kinds of mediums, but right now it's just the Posca's great and and it allows me to get my, I have more ideas and, and, and that's time. who you are. That's the kind of art you make, right? Yeah, I do use spray paint. Uh, so I'm not really a graffiti artist, but I, I do do big murals with spray paint. Okay. Uh, and maybe you call that graffiti, but... You know, when I'm hanging out with my graffiti artist friends, they look at me like, what in the heck are you doing? Because <laughs> I do it all so different. And, you know, I'll have yeah. these like gnarly graffiti dudes up in L.A. looking at me, like watching what I'm doing. Right. And, and I'll I'll come up with something they've never done before. And, yeah. and then and then I'm looking at them like how they do it. And I'm like, ah, that's that seems like crazy. Right, how you're right, doing it. Right. And it was just kind of neat because I feel the graffiti guys have all like learned from each other and I didn't learn from them. I just kind of grabbed paint and started doing it. And and so I, I came and up I with bet, something different. I bet those guys are the same way. I bet a lot of those artists, which are, I mean, like I really appreciate really great street art. Yeah. And I know a lot of those guys are also all self-taught, you know? Yeah. And, and it just gives you a... a a window into what's going on in the world sometimes where you know these artists you know I almost fell through the cracks and every once in a while the cops will drop off some you know kid that got caught graffiti in here in town and they're like maybe you can you know talk some sense into them and stuff and you know I look at this kid and I feel so bad for him because they cut art out of all the schools and, yeah, yeah. and he's desperately trying to find a way to contribute or you know, all anybody wants to feel is that they're good at something yeah. and express himself and and feel like he's got this worthwhile talent. Yeah, and and they're doing it in the shadows. And and I'm I told the kids I was like, look, man, you got to do this, you know, legitimately, where you're not going to get busted. And so and maybe instead of painting illegally on somebody's wall, maybe talk to somebody about maybe painting their wall. Yeah. That's what a lot of my friends up in, in L.A. do. Uh, different businesses have walls that they allow them to paint on, and they just paint over them and over them. They let it stay for you know a month, and then it's time to paint over it again Yeah. Um, because that's the wall that they have access to. That's great. You know, so there's, there's definitely ways to do it. And, uh, you know, anybody out in the world, you know, if you know somebody who does art, you know, try to, try to support them and try to... Uh, you know, point them in the right direction, especially the young people, because, you know, you don't want somebody's dream to be over before they ever start. Right. You want to encourage them. Right. Yeah. That's such a positive thought. Let's talk about the pieces that you've created in the past. I know that, you know, we've talked about you starting on surfboards. I saw some skateboards out here. I know that you painted vans. Yeah. I know you painted a bunch of vans. Yeah. Right? I, I lost count. Do you <laughs> that many, huh? And that's all spray paint too. The vans. Oh, really? Yeah. So okay. that's all spray paint. Wow. I do them in eight hours. Wow, eight hours is crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, you knock these things out, man. If you're doing like ten surfboards a day, and then you're you're knocking out a van. Yeah, it's, hours, a, it's crazy. Yeah, it's a job. It's just. I mean, that, that's another thing. A lot of people think about artists, like you know, I don't, I don't know what people think, but I always, you know, meet people that are kind of 
not really artists. They're just kind of playing artists and they're hanging out in the coffee shop and they got like five things hanging on the wall and they talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. I'm like, dude, I did five things yesterday. Like, <laughs> right. like, man, like, you know, the, anybody who comes into my studio here and they see how much stuff's in here, you know, it's a job. Yeah. I, mean, I'm, I yeah. the vans are a great example of that. I mean, they, nobody cares if it's not done. It's got to be done. You got to be able to do it in a time period that you're getting paid. If you spend too much time on it, you're not you're not going to make a living. Yeah. You know, I yeah. I've been a professional artist now for 30 years, and you know, I've always made a living. I've always uh, supported my family, and uh, man, that's just it. It's a job. Yeah. Well, going back to these pieces, is there anything that is a favorite of yours. Do you ever get attached to any of these? I try not to. Uh, I really feel that you got to let them go and go live out in the world and, and be enjoyed by people. Kind of like you bringing that mug back. I mean, it just makes me happy that it's it's somewhere where somebody cherishes yeah, it yeah. and that you know you show it to people and we're part of each other's story. So anytime you show that to somebody, you're like, yeah, it, this is done by this guy, Drew. And, you know, he was probably inspired by this, by being in Fiji and being chased by these crazy local guys. And, you know, it's, you know, it's like you're part of the story. Yeah. And so I feel like all my art that's out there and all the people who have it have their own story, either about me or what the art means to them. And that's, that that's, What's cool? Yeah. Anything weird that you've painted? Like, what's the weirdest thing that you've painted? Oh, man, I've painted some weird stuff. Uh, I painted an ostrich egg once. That was really <laughs> that was really weird. Wow. And I couldn't tell if the ostrich was in there anymore or not because something was rolling around in there. I was afraid it was going to break open and be like a rotten egg. <laughs> right. But it's like super hard. I don't know if you ever felt one of those. No, I haven't. Um, the other weirdest thing, a guy came in. He wanted me to paint this uh, old-timey mannequin. Man, the thing was creepy because it was so real looking. I don't yeah. know what era it was from, but it, uh, it was a woman. It looked like a hula girl kind of thing. And he wanted it to be, you know, painted like she was tattooed all over her body. And, you know, she had all the right, you know, female parts. And so I was having to paint all this stuff. And people would come into my studio and think I was like tattooing a chick. You know? <laughs> and um, the thing was really cool. But like by the time I got it done... Uh, I like had to fix it up and like I airbrushed her face so it looked real and then I, oh, I had a hat on her you know like a, just a baseball cap it was just something funny I did yeah. and then uh, the guy brought in this wig and put the wig on her and like man it looked like a, <laughs> it looked like a naked chick standing in my studio all tattooed up with her boobs hanging out and like it's starting to get creepy now, man. Yeah, and it was creepy, especially in the morning. Like, I'd be coming in, and the lights would be out, and, like, I could just see the shadow in there. Right, you got to look and twice. For a split second, I almost forgot. I was like, oh, yeah, the creepy mannequin's yeah. in there. But yeah. it turned out awesome, and the guy was stoked, and real nostalgic, like, you know, thing. And, and the tattoos on it were rad. Yeah. I did all these cool yeah. things. Yeah. Cool, cool. I want to talk about how your art has evolved from the surfboard style art or the surfer kind of vibe mm -hmm. to now you're doing this stuff that looks almost like metaphysical. Yeah. Um, it all happened real organically. 
And of course, as a surfer, uh, every surfer becomes an amateur meteorologist. Okay. And you're constantly right. studying the weather. And, and as an artist, I mean, nature's like amazing. So, you know, when I see waves and I'm out in the ocean and you're feeling this energy, it's like you're, it's like the heartbeat of the planet, right? You know, it's yeah, just like yeah. this, these waves are coming, they're born halfway around the world and, and it took them forever to get here. That's and such a great description, man. The heartbeat of the planet. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, you know, you're in that, those waves were generated by the sun. The sun was you know, spitting out the solar wind and that solar wind hits the planet and affects our atmosphere with, with, uh, you know, pressure differentials. And, and then that's what those winds create the waves. And so, you know, you really feel like you're part of something bigger when you understand the dynamics of how everything's working. Right. And, um, so just with that knowledge, I was already into these things and I got hired by a company to, it was a, a, a research guy, guy researching structured water. And I was like, what is that? You know, I had no idea what structured water was, but basically structured water is described as being water with information in it, uh, in, 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 in particularly within the, the, the lattice structure of its, of its molecules. And so that gets you know pretty deep quick, but basically I had to find a way to paint a, a painting to describe what was happening inside the water and how it was happening based off this guy's research. Oh wow! And they were doing this for big agriculture to create okay. systems to make the water healthier, so the plants would be healthier. And you know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, research. I, I can and, see that influence on this guy right here. Yeah, and so. You know, once that happened, I, I every project I have to dive in, and if I don't know about that topic or I haven't been to a place, I have to either go there or I have to read and or listen to podcasts or videos. And basically, uh, these guys sent me so much information, and in two weeks, I learned more about water than I ever knew existed. It was fascinating. In through these guys, I, I ended up meeting some other scientists that were studying different things. And, you know, the next thing I know, I was like listening and I had to, the only way I knew how to really understand something is to paint it. And so I started painting all these uh, geometry paintings and and basically they're kind of articulations of, of what's happening inside you know molecules and cells and in the dynamics of physics how everything's presenting itself and i mean it sounds really deep but when you look at some things like the fibonacci uh uh ratio and in the golden number in how these things are ever present in all living things and then we see them in good art and good music and all these things everything's kind of connected that way all of a sudden I started understanding, you know, maybe they teach us in art school or maybe they don't, but like what makes up a good, good composition in a painting mm -hmm. is the same thing that makes a flower beautiful. You know, these, uh, natural, uh, like patterns and symmetry. Yeah. And, and you know, what I found was I was already doing it in all my 
illustrating paintings, you know. So, like, I would paint these surfboards, and you like the surfboard because I made it look better. I made it look faster. Uh, it had movement to it. It looked When you looked at that surfboard, it was like you wanted to go ride it. And so if you did it wrong, it would create the opposite effect. It would make the board look fat, slow. You'd, you'd be like, I don't want to ride that board. It's terrible. Um, but it's the same thing with a painting. You like a painting for a reason. A lot of times you don't even know what that reason is. Yeah. But the artist does. The artist yeah. understands that these these delicate uh, ratios in in composition is everything. But the way that you execute these two, and I say very metaphysical, because they have a, a very spiritual quality to them. They're peaceful. Yeah. And, you know, basically it's almost like visual math. Okay. And... You know, for those that uh, you listening, this we're talking about uh, sacred geometry and and really trying to understand like the basically where I'm, I'm drawing circles. And I'll post up photos as well so that people can see this. We'll post yeah. up photos on the group page. And and so you know, this process is very meditative, and you know, this is not new. This is comes from ancient you know times. You know, the Greeks and the Egypt, Babylonian, I mean, they, they, were, they were doing all this, you know, trying to figure out how to build things, how to make things look good, how to measure things. Right. And that's what's fascinating to me. It seems that people in ancient times knew this stuff better than we did. And through my travels, I've seen it with my own eyes as far as some of these articulations. And you see it in the architecture and in the art. So... My traveling has not stopped in the past 30 years. I try to go somewhere different uh, a couple times a year. So I've been to all these radical places around the world and, and not just go there and take pictures, but, you know, I spent like a month in Egypt. I've been in and around, under, on top of all those structures with amazing people, you know, Peru and Mexico and, you know, places in Europe and lots of places in Polynesia. I mean, I like being places and and go to somewhere where nobody's really goes, you know. I mean, the tourist places are cool too, but, you know, there might be some kind of like obscure thing somewhere and you're like, ask some local dude and you're like, yeah, I'll take you there. So let's switch gears and talk about your travel because that's something I'm also very passionate about. I think it's, it's how you learn about the world, right? Yeah. Everyone lives in a different way even if it's here whether you stay home or whether you go abroad you learn about different cultures you learn about different customs you learn about different philosophies of living mm-hmm. and and it makes you more um worldly is just such a cliche for that more cultured more wise um you find out we're all the same yeah yeah at, at its core i mean if you took the language barrier out and people actually talk to each other, you'd find out that everybody, you know, wants the same things. They all want the same thing. And um, it's very frustrating to, uh, you know, hear hear anything negative about a place or anything like that. Because I always say, like, you know, well, I've been there and I met those people and they're not at all like you say or how the news says or something like that. Right. I mean, sure, there's, you know, people in every place that, you know, aren't that great. But... The majority of people are cool. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I caught a lot of flack for going to Egypt, and people were like, oh, you know, it's dangerous, this, that, and the other. The Egyptians are cool, man. Those yeah, people were yeah. great. 
And, you know, I sat there and listened to them, you know, tell me about, you know, their life and what it's like. And, and you know, I loved every minute of it. And in um, every place is like that. I love being in Asia. Like I had to work in China and it was like, you know, people were like, going, oh, yeah, they're running like slave factories over there. Man, I showed up in the factory and there was like cool kids listening to iPods. They're stoked. They're working. They're joking. They're having fun. And. I was like, man, it's not like that at all. Like, not saying there's not those kind of places over there, but my experience was amazing. Yeah. Um, the other thing is like the food. Like, you know, people are like got like great food everywhere. Right, right. I I ain't a what was it two summers ago? I was in uh, the middle of nowhere in Mexico in the central at these pyramids and uh, went to a restaurant and they served me ant eggs. Oh, really? And like, you know, I've eaten some crazy things, but I think that was the craziest thing I've eaten. What was it like? It was awesome. They were like sweet. Oh, wow. They almost looked like rice, like fatter rice, but they were like these fire ant eggs and um, they served them like as a little taco. And How do they prepare it? Yeah, it was like a little taco. I think they're. But I mean, is it like fried? Yeah, Yeah, I think they fried them. Okay, okay. And um, I mean... Interesting. Yeah. yeah, it was just crazy, and you know, and that's the thing about travel too is it opens your mind to try things like that, right? Because then you you just look at it as like, okay, this is what they eat here, so I'm gonna try it. You know, yeah, it's not weird to you because no matter where you go, it's it's always gonna be different what they're eating. Yeah, I remember like I was surfing in Tahiti, and uh, we'd been surfing all day, and. You know, we go to leave, and, and everywhere in Tahiti, you have to take a boat. You know, you take this boat out to the reef. The reef's pretty far out. And um, my friend Moana, you know, goes, oh, man, I need to get dinner. So, like, we're about to leave. We're all, like, loaded up in the boat. And he jumps over with a mask and a spear gun. And he, like, jump, like I'm like, what? And he goes and spears this big old parrotfish. Wow. And, like, comes in. And he goes, all right, we're going to eat tonight. And, like... <laughs> I was just like, no way. And I felt bad because I'd been surfing all day with this parrotfish and like it just got speared right, and we we're going right. to eat them. But man, it was really good. Right. But you know, that, that, that experience is, is pretty rad. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen cultures. I can't remember where I was. I've been all over the world too. Probably not as much as you have, but I've been to um, a lot of different places and there was a place where we... Prior to eating, they wanted to say a prayer for the animal that gave up its life so that we could live. Yeah. Right? And that's the way that they did it. They respected the animal and thanked it for giving up its life so that it could nourish us. Yeah. And I thought that that was a really eye-opening thing that we take a lot of that for granted, right? You you go down, you get a burger from McDonald's or something. You don't think about the slaughter that happened to bring that burger to you, you know? Yeah. You know, and it's interesting you say that because I actually do. Like, I, I had that's another thing about being an artist is like, and I know most people don't, but like, sometimes I'll be sitting there like at somebody's house, like we'll we'll be somewhere and it's like a potluck, let's say, and yeah. all this amazing foods there. And usually I think about it, especially with vegetables, and I'm like sitting there and and I'm like all this stuff had to grow and it took so much time to grow and and then it was harvested and brought here and. Like, where did all this stuff come from to come to this table? Yeah, and yeah. like, 
then I start, I like look at the rice dish and I'm like, okay, where did that rice come from? Did it come from? Wow. You know, like really break everything down. Yeah. And then you're like, somebody opens a bottle of wine. I'm like, okay, there's grapes grew somewhere. <laughs> and like, you know, all of a sudden you're just sitting there and you're like, whoa, this is like, yeah. And if you looked at it from that perspective more, you'd have such appreciation. Yeah, totally. And not just for the plant itself, but the people who, yeah, who grew, brought it there, who grew it and made the wine and, yeah. and, and that's what I mean by that. Who brought it there? The people yeah. who, who had to harvest the, the the vegetables and had to everything that was made. Yeah, and so I do that with everything. And you like the artistic mind is like crazy, and maybe or maybe I am. You know, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, you know, I see like uh, everything as design, and so I'm always like looking: is this good design, bad design? And it could be furniture. It could be you know this microphone. You know, does this function or does it not? And, you know, people don't think about these things. Like I see a light plug, like a light switch, and I'm like thinking, okay, the wires are going here. And like, I'm just, all that's happening at once. And, um... You were born to be an artist, man. Yeah. You've got that mind. And you forget sometimes that not everybody's thinking this way. It's almost, it's like a, you know, hyper-awareness or something. Right, uh, right. It's kind of a curse too, because uh, <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, you're yeah. just like you know, tr- yeah, you're yeah. just tripping out on everything. There's one travel story that you haven't mentioned that I want to bring up because I find this particularly fascinating. Tell us about your stand-up paddle adventure on the Colorado River at the Grand Canyon. Oh yeah! Wow, I almost forgot about that one. I don't know how I could forget. That was amazing. Yeah, so um, my buddy and I were the first two guys to paddle the entire Grand Canyon uh, on the Colorado River. So it was like 260-something miles. and uh, On a stand-up paddleboard. On the stand-up paddleboard, yeah. So, you know, I was lucky to be an early adopter of the stand-up paddleboard. And if anybody hasn't done it, do it. It's awesome. Maybe do it on flat water, not the Colorado, because <laughs> yeah, there's rapids on the Colorado. Yeah, so you know, number one, it's just like such a different experience. Uh, the Colorado in the Southwest is just unbelievable, and to experience the Grand Canyon via the Colorado is a chance of a lifetime not many people get to do it i was going to say you're 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 doing something and this particular thing that you did with with a stand-up paddleboard is even more unique but you do something that most people don't get to experience yeah in just the visual alone you know forget about the athleticism and the you know logistics of doing it just the aesthetics of viewing the grand canyon from the river for that amount of time it took us 16 days to do it was life-changing and it takes you totally out of the modern world because you're so in the moment every second of every day right and there's nothing modern right. you know no phones there's no you don't even see any airplanes or helicopters you don't see any other people um every once in a while you might see somebody but like i mean you feel like you're fighting for your life every day and it's cold. The water's 42 degrees. Wow. Uh, wow. You're in a wetsuit. have a helmet, life jacket. There's things that could drown you and kill you like every like 
10 feet. <laughs> wow. Wow. I had no, I, honestly, I had no idea how difficult and amazing and dangerous it was going to be. I got invited on the trip because uh, some friends of mine had, uh, that you have to win a lottery to do this. Oh. And so very few people get to do this okay. every year. And um, due to it's so dangerous. And so we put together this trip and it was 15 people in rafts. And we were uh, got to go on stand-up boards, and so we. How many were on the stand-ups? Yeah, just my my friends Seth Warren and I. Just the two of just you. Just the two of and us. And then the people on the rafts were they kind of guides? Were they were they like uh, first aid that kind of stuff? Or? No, they were um, uh, his parents. Okay. His parents are the ones that won the lottery, and they. Uh, invited all their friends they were all okay. uh, up there in age they were all in their late 60s early wow. 70s and every one of them it was their dream to do the grand canyon oh that's so cool so, so they were there for the expedition yeah and so these people are you know hardcore whitewater rafting people and you know basically their whole lives they've been wanting to do the grand canyon but it's so difficult to get a, a spot that they nobody had ever gotten a yeah won the lottery yeah. And so when Seth's parents won the lottery, they invited all their friends who were probably never going to get to do it. And this yeah. was their last chance. Oh, that's that's pretty cool. And um, so Seth and I got to go. And at first, the, you know, the park service in the Grand Canyon was were laughing at us because there had been two other people that had tried to do it and um, didn't succeed because of its difficultness. And so we had to be have a spot on one of the rafts in case something happened. Okay. But we were determined to do every inch of that river on our, on our standups. And we did. Um, but they were laughing at us saying it was going to be impossible that there was no way we were going to be able to do it. And it was, it was terrifying. You proved them wrong. Yeah. And, but what ended up happening is the SUP ended up being the perfect vehicle to play lifeguard. Yeah. Because it's dangerous for the, the boats too. And the, that year, it was 2011, uh, the water was really high. So the, the rapids, for those of you who don't know, the Grand Canyon is just gnarly. It has some mega rapids in yeah, it. Yeah. And they scale at 1 to 10. Uh, most rapids, I think, are 1 to 5. And uh, the rapids are just so big there. I mean, it, it looks like you're going over a ski slope. Wow. With giant moguls in it. And, wow. And rocks sticking out. Like, imagine, like... Being at the top of the mountain, and you have, but you have to go. You don't get to look first. Yeah, yeah. And you get up over the top, and you look, and it's just straight down with like moguls with big rocks sticking out of it. And that's what all those wow. rapids were like. And uh, and you were doing this on a stand-up paddleboard. Yeah. And we got killed like so many times. And our whole mission was to survive a rapid, and we survived some, but we got murdered on most of them. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And um. But what ended up happening is we became the, the lifeguards and the sweeps. So we we would usually have uh, Seth would be in the front or I'd be in the back, uh, be in the sweep, making sure everybody was okay. And in the big heavy rapids, we went first every time. And then we would go on either side of the rapid uh, to make sure if a boat had a problem, like got flipped, we would be there to rescue them. And uh, the rule was... Rescue people first, supply or re- people first, boats second, and then supplies. 
because these boats would get stuck in these rapids and you know 16 foot boat would get sucked underwater and then yeah. spit out and they would start flipping and that centripetal force would launch the the people out and all the stuff would get thrown out and um we saved a bunch of people wow. and um people that weren't even on our trip and um yeah it was it was a tr- it, that was a crazy thing because i mean there's no escape. I mean, once you enter the Grand Canyon, you, there, yeah, there's no getting yeah. out. Yeah. And so you have to do it. And we did have a satellite phone in case there was an emergency where they could send a helicopter. But it was like ten grand to call the hel- helicopter. So uh, you didn't want to get hurt or bit by a snake or something. I mean, right, it could right, be. Right. Um, but, man, some of the Indian stuff in there was amazing. There's like all these Indian ruins and you know petroglyphs and paintings and man we hiked up to this one that was like so far up and like with the these death defying cliffs and they built this stone structure up on this spire that we hiked to and like i was terrified i hate heights (laughs) and it was like super windy oh man and i'm in this like little building on top of this thing out in the middle of the grand canyon out in the middle of nowhere and i'm like why did they build this thing here yeah like, what is this place? And it seemed it was like a defensive position. Like, you could see down both sides of the river. Right. But, man, I wonder how many Indians died building that place because it was terrifying. I, like, crawled on my hands and knees into wow. this building. And wow. there was, like, sheer drop-offs on either side. Wow. So we did stuff like that. And, um, man, I slept so good. You just fall face first in the sand. Yeah. And you'd have – it was like a military ex- expedition. You'd had to set up your camp and – food and you know it was a leave no trace so everything went in and out um it was it was a lot of work what's your next expedition after this one (laughs) i mean like or let's just let let me ask you this question is there anywhere in the world that you haven't traveled yet that you want to see oh there's so many you know i'll never get to go everywhere but i'm gonna try um you know i don't know I, i we went through the last uh six years or so we've been doing stuff all in America so you know driving around a van and just you know America's so amazing yeah. there's so many places that are still like you know you're in Southern California and you think it's so crowded or the Northeast and you think it's so crowded and most of our country is like empty there's like yeah. nothing just yeah. forest and deserts and you know it, it doesn't matter where you go there's something beautiful about yeah. everywhere yeah. Um, so I, you know, I want to go to Angkor Wat. I'd love to go to, um, uh, Micronesia. There's a site there. I like going to ancient sites. And I love that these spots that you're traveling to aren't all surf destinations. Yeah. That's a, that's the other thing is, you know, I have gotten into going to places that are just, you know, off the beaten path. Yeah. Uh, some of these places are super hard to go to, too. Uh, there's, pretty cool, pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, one of the things I like to do, and I, this has been a really great interview, and I appreciate so much you giving me your time here, Drew. Yeah. Now I want to ask you some fun questions. All right. All right. If a movie were to be made about your life, who do you think should play you? Oh. 
don't know. I'm kind of a funky dude. I think uh, I have um, a great answer for that. Uh, but, that? I, but I'm curious who you're you thinking. Oh, you want me to go first? So I think Matthew McConaughey. I can see that dude. He's pretty nice. He, he's much more... Uh, He's better looking. Um, <laughs> I could just see him fitting right into your role and yeah. being Drew Brophy. I could tell uh, the surfing, the traveling, the art. Yeah. All of it. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, the free thinking, you know? You know, there's like, there's also like this hard edge side of me too, especially like when things get serious, like with like surfing big waves and stuff like that, you know, because I love surfing big waves that all the fun stuff goes out and it's just like, this is real, you know? Like, yeah. Um, and it also gets like that in like an emergencies and things. I've been in some like gnarly accidents and, uh, gnarly weather wow. events where, wow. you know, things are getting ready to go bad. And for some reason, I always get nominated to do the, the gnarly thing. And, yeah. And so, you know, that becomes like more of a James Bond type of thing. Yeah. There you like, go. Like I was in Indonesia when our boat was about to go up on this reef and we were stuck on the bottom and, and I was taking a nap and they called me like, dude, we got to save the boat. And I'm like, well, dude, we have to get off all the bottom and we, the anchor chain was all stuck. And so I'm diving off the boat and wow. like having to fix this thing. And like, I don't know. I, I think that maybe an action hero or something. How about John Philbin, the guy who played Turtle on North Shore? Oh, I know that guy. That guy's cool. He was on my podcast a couple was months he? ago. Yeah, yeah, that dude's cool. Yeah, man. he's super cool. Yeah. yeah, he could do it. Yeah, because he's a surfer. So I could see him. And then he played one of the um, one of the bank robbers in, uh, in Point Break. Yeah. So he's got like that badass side and he's got the surfer side, the, the waterman guy, you know? Yeah, John, you got the job. So there you go. So John Philbin. That's what we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna put John in that role. Um, I, hope he, I hope he can swim real good. <laughs> uh, if you could spend a day with anyone, real or fictitious, dead or alive, who would you choose? Oh, Tesla. Oh, there you go. Great answer, and you knew that right away. Yeah, I'd love to hang out with Nikola Tesla. Yeah, yeah. All right. If you were stranded on a desert island, what's the one thing you couldn't live without? Whoa. Probably my wife and kids. Oh, dude, that's my answer. Yeah. My answer is my family. Yeah. Because people will think like, oh, maybe an ukulele so I can keep myself entertained. <laughs> or I maybe. Can, I, can, I can make a ukulele out of stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. My, that's, dude, that's awesome, man. That's that's my answer, too. Yeah. I'd hate to be that. What's the, the one dude that got stuck with the volleyball? Yeah. On the <laughs> island. Poor dude. Tom Hanks. Yeah. Uh, and the last question, if you weren't creating art for a living, what do you think you'd be doing today? surfing okay there yeah. you go yeah no for sure i mean i tell my wife all the time i'm like you know if if i didn't have to make a living uh yeah you know, providing for my family like let's say i won the lottery i mean i'd just be surfing around the world there you go i mean i'd probably still do art for fun but like you know it wouldn't be my plan to like create some masterpiece and you know pay for it myself i'd i'd just be living man yeah yeah well, it sounds like you already are, though, you know? You're trying, you know? I think, it, you know, it's a good message for everybody is like, this is it, man. Yeah. You don't save it for a rainy day. Do it. Do a little bit. Uh, some of the best advice, I forget who even said this, but uh, I heard this once, and I was already doing it, but instead of saving up for this, you know, grand vacation at the end of your life, I, I, I use this, uh, how should I say it? 
I got this from my grandparents. My grandparents were, they worked hard their whole lives and they were old, like they looked old when they were young, you know, they were probably in their 60s. They looked like they were 80 and, and they finally retired and their dream was to go to Hawaii. And they had this picture in their house of these two old people with lays on at a, a luau. And I just looked at it, and I was just so bummed for them because that's not the time to yeah, be going to Hawaii yeah. and going to a luau as these two elderly people. Yeah, yeah. You want to go when you're young, yeah. and you can go party, and you can go skinny dipping, and you can, you know, enjoy everything. You can go do the hikes. And so I think my a message to people is, you know, take little retirements every year. So when you're old and gray, you don't have to go anywhere. There's all these pictures of you doing all these fantastic things, and maybe you don't move so good anymore, and you just go, hey, honey, remember when we did this? Remember when we did that? And You can look back at an amazing life. Yeah, because those things can never be taken away from you. You can lose all your money and your health and all that kind of stuff, but those experiences, nobody can take those from you. Very wise words. And um, So get out there and go do stuff. There you go. Drew, I want to sincerely thank you for taking the time to sit down with me. Yeah, man. I wish that we didn't have 17 years between the time we first met and having a conversation like this. Yeah, it was, well, it's, maybe it's just the right time. Maybe it was. I mean, yeah. It was a very, uh, very inspiring conversation. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much. I enjoyed the stories that you shared. I enjoy your art. What's the future of Drew Brophy Art? You know, I'm just going to keep going further. Uh, One of the things that we're doing is uh, we're doing like an online thing where we're going to be teaching people how to paint. So I always envision that, you know, give people these tools to do art themselves. Uh, I really feel like there's a lot of people out there who feel like the things that they're good at, nobody cares about. And, uh... I kind of want to change that. I, I want to give people the tools to to do art as a profession or for fun. And uh, so that's kind of the, one of the things that we're working on. Very give cool. the gift of art. And, and there again, it doesn't matter how good it is. It's the experience of doing it. And um, Very cool. Yeah, so yeah. that's what we're yeah. up to. So if, if anybody wants to see your art, wants to purchase your art, or wants any more information about you and and what you do here at the gallery can we give out your website and your social media and all that yeah everything's just under drew brophy so d-r-e-w-b-r-o-p-h-y and um that's drewbrophy.com drew brophy instagram all that kind of stuff facebook and yeah we're kind of we're we're everywhere i mean we've grown through all this technology um i'm interested to see what's next with technology really yeah um and that the learning platform we're doing is is a another thing about adapting technology that you know we do online or not online but we do live classes and we can only teach like 10 to 20 people at a time and uh, there's people everywhere that want or need to to have this joy so that platform is going to allow us to yeah. work with thousands of people at yeah. a time and uh, I just think that's amazing. Very cool. And then yeah. maybe I can go visit those people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there you go, folks. DrewBrophy.com. Check him out on Instagram also at DrewBrophy. Is it DrewBrophy? DrewBrophy Art? 
Drew Brophy. Uh, Type in Drew Brophy. You'll His name will come it. up. Yeah. And uh, if you guys have any questions, comments, or just want to leave a shout out, you can hit us up at the group page on Facebook, Inside the Desert Oasis Room. Check out our website, desertoasisroom.com, or follow us on Instagram at Polynesian Pop. Thank you again, Drew. Appreciate it so much. Aloha. Yeah, yeah life's good. Bye. Cheers. Bye.